The OSS Cubed is back with over $14 million in guaranteed prize pools from September 24th to October 22nd. This massive tournament series features three $1 million guaranteed tournaments. The first takes place on October 15th at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, featuring a half-price buy-in of just $265. Just one week later, on October 22nd, we'll have two million-dollar tourneys the same day, one with a $540 buy-in and the Boss Main Event with a $2,100 buy-in. AmericasCardroom.com Okay, welcome to OneOuter.com podcast, sponsored by AmericasCardroom.com. If you want 27% rate back from AmericasCardroom.com, simply sign up for your account by clicking on one of the ads or banners on the OneOuter.com website. Follow us on Twitter at OneOuter.com, that's at O-N-E-O-U-T-E-R-D-O-T-C-O-M. Join the Facebook group, facebook.com slash group slash OneOuter. This episode is available on OneOuter.com website and also via iTunes for free. And it's a great pleasure today, uh, rather than the Ask Alex show that I do on a weekly basis, um, OneOuter.com actually started with getting on poker players, professional gamblers, etc. for sort of long-form, in-depth interviews. And the guy that's away to come on now, Alan Boston, was on a few years ago and to this day, it's still one of the most listened to and actually one of the shows that I've had the most feedback on. Even today, people like go back through the archives and listen to it. So without further ado, Alan Boston, uh, great to have you back. I've been on about doing this for ages with you again, but finally we got it going and you're back on the show today. Yeah, no, it's a, a happy memory. I, I thought that was one of the better interviews I did of all the ones I've done over the years. That was uh, That went to places that I didn't expect and, and and I think it was uh in a good way uh it kind of captured me and also captured uh a lot of good points that people could ponder I think that's uh what an interview should do you got to learn the person and then listen to what they're saying and if that triggers something good then then awesome and I think it did and I think it uh there's not many that can go back in the history of poker pre-boom who knew a lot of the key characters and and I'm one of the few that's still alive that's kind of like young enough to to have some memories but uh you know, I'm not way, way back to the, to the pure Doyle Brunson days, but just on the edge of the end of his days and beginning of the era. But, you know, I've been playing poker since 83, and the boom was, you know, 20 years later. So uh, I have both sides of the fence covered, and there's not many left that, do, that, that can do that. So, yeah, nice to be back on. And uh, coincidentally, <laughs> co- coincidentally, I was born in '83. So you've been playing poker since I was born, or before I was Great. born. Great, <laughs> thanks a fucking lot. That's just what I wanted to hear. <laughs> um, no, and uh, just it's one of these things. I was speaking to Alan before we started recording, and I was saying that you know, as listeners of the show regularly will know, I used to play for a living, and a few years ago I stopped, got back into business. And but like in the Godfather, you know, just when I thought it was out, it pulled me back in. Last year, I started playing some more live tournaments and online cash games and tournaments and really sort of, I wouldn't say got the bug back in terms of playing every day. But I, I certainly the last few months, I've been playing at least once a week again and just enjoying the game for what it should be for me now, like a game and, you know, a mind sport and enjoying it and uh, not having that pressure of playing for a living and everything that goes with that i mean i it led to a really unhealthy lifestyle for myself i know guys out there are just they're wired to just do it and they some of them live really happy balanced lifestyles but 
I just couldn't do it. I would just immerse myself in it and my health went to shit and everything that goes with that. So um, I, I started listening to the Gambling with an Edge podcast again, which I enjoy. And Alan was uh, came up on one of those episodes and I was like, oh yeah, I said, we got to get Alan back on the show because I really enjoyed that last time. And then I googled um, the sports betting stuff and I came up with a documentary called The Best of It which Alan was one of the feature characters in, a sort of documentary following the life of these, I think it was three or four sports bettors. And I really enjoyed that documentary. Um, so if you haven't watched that, definitely go and buy that and, and enjoy it. I don't want to give too much away about it, but it, it takes a sort of twist near the end. or um, it's, it's really, really weird. And um, it's, I also, I'm going to get my fiancé to watch it because I said to her, I mean, she obviously, by proxy follows some of the gambling world and poker etc and has an interest in it but this is one of these documentaries like even if you're not remotely interested in sports betting or gambling it's like any good documentary it's that human side it's the human condition of these guys and the whole situation in the story which makes it great viewing you know so definitely check that out um alan i've got i said to you i've got some bullet points where i want to like head off and the first one I, I want to talk about, we'll maybe come back to the best of it, but the first thing I want to say is last time you were on, you mentioned that um, after the show, you forgot to talk about the Poker After Dark story about how they, oh. about how they asked you um, how did a stud, a stud play in yeah, the yeah, sports yeah, better yeah. end up in a no-limit game. And obviously with Poker After Dark now back on this Poker Go and stuff they've they've been doing uh, new episodes of it recently uh, it's a good as place as any to start it off and uh, you just take us through your time on poker after dark and that story that you were wanting to tell in the last show but didn't yeah let me uh uh the poker after dark they had asked me on i said you know i don't really play no at hold them and you know i don't know how useful i'd be and then they asked me again and i said okay well there's certain players i won't play with and don't bother putting me at the table with them because i can't stand them and full tilt was putting up the money so and I was not a full tilt pro. Don't get me wrong. I was I was one of their red players, but they paid me by the hour. I didn't have some contractual deal where I got put in tournaments and you know had a salary. I just got paid by the hour and and you know and and did my job and was actually proud of how I did my job. But I actually, that had been one of the proudest things I did in life was 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 just you know live by the learn, chat, and play with the pros. And 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 I did that to the to the nth degree, to the point where I didn't care if I won or lost. It was my job to make it a good time for people on there. So. When they asked me on a no limit hold and freeze out, obviously that's not one of my strong suits because I had barely played the game. And all right, well, you know, I have a good logical mind, and and you know, I'll kind of just wing it. And you know, and and, it, and when I watch it now, I, I really struggle to watch it because I really would have done, I would have played almost every hand, I think, differently, but but maybe one. Uh, which ironically, the two kings hand was the only like premium hand I had, or what they call premium hands, I guess. I, I, I think other hands might be better, but uh, on the entire show, I was completely card dead, which uh, didn't help my demeanor any. Uh, but, so I'm on there a little uncomfortably, and there's Espandiari, who I absolutely abhor. I cannot stand the guy. Uh, and he was one of the people I told him, I'm not playing with him, and, and there he is. And like, what are you doing, Maury? And so it's so funny, because Jamie Gold comes in, and he doesn't know me from Adam, and here I am screaming at Maury, like, at the top of my lungs, just, like, completely out of my mind, and Jamie's like, I'm playing with this knucklehead, you know, like, he's, like, scared shitless, like, I might kill him if he sucks out of me or something. <laughs> uh, really. Uh, so, 
I get to the table and, and there's a three hour delay. And I see a girl I know. And I ask you, you got anything? This is all fact. She said, well, I have Adderall and Percocet. I said, geez, I've never done that mix before. And I called up a friend in Maine. I said, do you know anything about Adderall and Percocet? He said, yeah. And long story short, I take the Adderall and the Percocet. And it turns out she's, she's, uh, <laughs> she's part of the show. And on a Tuesday night episode, the drugs kick in. Like, as we're playing, the drugs kick in. And I have this shit-eating grin come across my face, and I just say, thank you. And uh, people will notice who, who does the smiling, and, and, and they'll figure it out from there. But I, I don't want to say any more. But so early on in the show, uh, Shauna Hyatt comes over, calls me over. They told me she might. And by the way, she might be the hottest woman I've ever seen in my life. She is very, very special. It, I mean, she might be beautiful on air. Live, forget it. It's like a, a total knockout. Mm -hmm. That's just an aside. And she calls me over, and, and I'm looking at this camera ahead of me, and, and she's to my right, and I, they say, okay, you know, we're going to ask you a question, etc. They prep me for it. And I said, well, do I look at that camera straight ahead, or do I get to look at her? And they said, well, look at her. I said, well, that's a good start to the interview for sure. <laughs> and she now asked me the following question. And this is while some hands being played, and maybe they paused the action. I don't know. But she asked me, how does a seven-card stud slash sports better become a Nolan Holden player? And I said, wow, that's a good question. It turns out the question came from Eric Drake, who was one of the producers of the show and, and uh, you know, probably the per person most important for poker being put on the map. Just uh, He ran the World Series of Poker for all those years. He ran all the biggest rooms in Vegas. He invented satellites, which he told me the story of, but dinner one night and, and just... He, he, he made poker uh, accessible to the masses. He really did, mm -hmm. which, which uh, you know, segued into, uh, you know, a, a billion-dollar industry or whatever it is. So I say, good question, and I said, well, give me a couple seconds, and I come up with the following answer. And this, this answer was come up with, you know, within 10 or 15 seconds. And I don't know the exact words I use, but I'll give you the – short version, which hammers home the point anyway, and it wasn't many more words than this. And I said, I like to think of myself as an iconoclastic anachronism or as an anachronistic iconoclast, whichever you prefer. But Nolan Holdem became so relevant, so big to the masses, that even I had to give in. So what I'm saying is, even though I don't give a fuck what the rest of the world does, and I'm kind of a throwback old-school romantic, who doesn't really fit in with the modern times. I have everything going against me to being an Ullman Holden player. It got so big that even I had to give in and play, mm -hmm. which I thought was about the perfect answer. Yeah. Because seven-card stud player and sports better don't equal Ullman Holden player. So it was really an excellent question, but it was really an, it was an even better answer. And, of course, they don't – they're the idiot host, who I think still is the idiot host nowadays – Ali, whatever the hell his name is. Yeah, Nishan. Ali Nishan. Yeah, so, so he's, still the, he's still an idiot because idiots don't change. And uh, and if your friend is, I apologize, but that's just a fact. He is an idiot. Uh, he tells me that he didn't understand what I said. I said, well, look it up in the dictionary. Or I could just tell you, but it's probably better if you look it up yourself. Try to, you know, figure it out. And they tell me that, you know, they're not going to be able to air it. I said, well, why not? I said, here's something that's finally intelligent. Finally, something with some intelligence being said on the show. 
You can have that, or you can have the unrelenting cliche of Antonio Esfandiari, the nonsense that Jamie Gold espews, or Mattisau's cliche. You can have all this simplistic crap that they've said 150 times before, and they'll say 150 times later because they don't know any better. Okay. Or you can have something that may resonate with some people and, and, and actually trigger some good thought. Well, people in Peoria aren't going to understand it. I said, well, the people in Peoria might understand it because Bradley University is there, and that's not that bad a school. And <laughs> so that didn't, that didn't go over too well either. But, so, of course, they don't air that. And that really kind of pissed me off. And, and, you know, I think part of the reason they didn't air it is they, they, is they didn't really like me on that show. Uh, I don't know why they didn't. I, I thought I was, as soon as the drugs kicked in, I never shut up. I thought I was very funny, making fun of Negreanu, making fun of, you know, ABC, having, you know, ongoing conversations with Mike Sexton, who I've known for years and have liked for years. And, you know, I thought it was actually kind of cool. Uh, I don't think the rest of the poker world thought that, and I and 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 I took a lot of flack on uh, Full Tilt for my goofy avatar, but I think more so for you know looking like an amateur on television. During the show, I very clearly when Mike Sexton said, "Don't you wish we were playing seven card stud?" I said, "Yeah." Then I'd be out playing all you guys. I said, "All you guys out playing me." I never said when I went on there that I was some fucking superstar at Nolan Holdem. All that being said, I'd love to play that table now, and and I think I'd have I think I'd have I think it'd be a cakewalk. But uh, yeah, Esfandiari too, who I don't have much respect for. But uh, that's not the point. The point is, I never said I was some great Norman Holden player. In fact, I I almost said the opposite on that show. Uh, number two, I, I I kept it light and cool, and and making fun of everybody is and is poker should be fun. It shouldn't be some you know uh, serious thing, which I think was part of your battle and and what you talked about in the intro here is uh, that seems to have been your battle is you, you maybe got too wrapped up in it and lost sight of the fact that we have to live a life too. Yeah. So why not make it fun? And you found a way to make it fun by just playing on the side and not being the do all end all, which is really cool that you were able to come back to something you love and make it work. So, you know, props to you because a lot of people can't do that. And, and eventually, you know, I conquered all the near dwellers because I eventually did a 2 plus 2 interview, which went over extremely well and uh, have subsequently become, I'm told, one of their more popular guests. I find that hard to believe, but that's what they tell me, and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of go with it. They don't have me on very often, so I don't think I'm that popular, but uh, I'm, I'm happy to do it when they, when they have it, and, and I enjoy doing the show. And uh, So, yeah, uh, that's the uh, whole history of, of my Poker After Dark. I, I didn't petition to get on there. I never claimed I was any kind of Nolan Holden player, and never would have, by the way, very, very clearly, even in that question. That's why I wish they had this on the show. Had they asked me that question, it would have been very clear that I'm not a guy who's going to be comfortable in this table. You know, and my comment later, this isn't even poker, when, when Jamie Gold bet the flop and I called and he shoved the turn, and, you know, of course I would have got it in on the, on the flop now, but that's, that's, you know, with the parent of Flusher, I'm 100% just getting it in against his, you know, and he would have called with his top pair bad kicker because he didn't know any better. And uh, and probably, it's probably even right in that in in dynamic, right in three-bed free. So, yeah, I guess it's probably is right. Anyway, uh, that comment was made fun of because to a guy who doesn't play poker, these, you know, these semi-turbo freeze-outs isn't poker. It's a different form of poker than what I'm used to, but it's something that I would never, ever encounter in a deep stack cash game, right? Mm -hmm. Where all of a sudden you're just getting it in with top pair on, on the flop or on the turn because you have to. 
And to me, that's not poker because there's really not much thought. It's more of a mathematical game, right? I, I, I'm assuming. I still don't know that game that well. Just, you know, late in tournaments, I guess I do. But even there, I have a different approach than most to, to how to handle those uh, 7 to 17 big blind stacks. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, I, I don't read. I just kind of wing it. That, that's where I do it differently than everybody. But uh, I'm getting a little long-winded here. So I, I hope that answered the, uh, the poker after dark question. I, I, uh, I was kind of made a fool of on there. The editing definitely didn't help, and the fact that I wasn't a good player didn't help. Uh, so it was a little discouraging that they were kind of making me out to be the bad guy when I was actually doing them a favor and coming on the show not in my comfort zone and not with a player that I had asked them not to have there and, and et cetera and so on. So, yeah, I kind of want to clear that up a little bit. I mean, it doesn't matter anymore because I, I definitely have uh, conquered my uh, – my haters, and, uh, you know, we're all human beings, and, and I think uh, a lot of the younger kids back then who, who were looking at this guy on TV who can't play a lick, you know, and they're, crying, they're trying to grind 25, 50 cents. What the fuck is this guy doing on TV playing for all that money when I'm trying to grind 25, 50 cents, and I would kill him? Yeah. I totally get that if you're young and, and, and that dynamic shows that you'd be pissed. In some ways, a party would be pissed, and you're not mature enough to, to take the proper approach to handling it so it becomes a little kind of a hatred thing and it all makes sense now uh but you know when i did the two plus two interview and i made it very clear that i knew the online players there was that whole dynamic who's better online or live and i was the first guy who played live who said that the online players of course are better mm -hmm. you know it's it's like a golf swing the more reps you get in the better you're going to get and these kids get a lot of reps in and you know they they can sponge things up when they're young and they're going to come up with a lot more creative approaches than some guy who plays, you know, two hands an hour is, you know, if you're playing a thousand hands an hour and, and you're involved with, you know, 8% of them or, or X percent of them, it's certainly better than playing, you know, 40 hands an hour and playing two of them. Yeah. How are you going to get better? Yeah. So, I think yeah, so it was rather obvious to me that the online world was much tougher than the live world. And when I was a full tilt pro, you know, even playing 25, 50 cent and 50 cent a dollar, which I wouldn't play any more than that because I was trying to make it, a fun game for everybody and not necessarily try to win. At the same time, I did uh, become involved with uh, my uh, surrogate son's best friend who wanted to be a poker player and who kind of failed first time, but then second time, he's the one that, that called me and said, you know, you have this job with Full Tilt. I was struggling at the time with sports betting, and he said, you have this job with Full Tilt. They pay you rather well. Why don't you just do that? Mm. And if there's anything I can do to help, I'd love to. You know, you've done so much for all us kids up here. I'd love to be able to help you, Mr. Boston. And, uh, I said, well, give me a day to think about it, and that's when I said, well, if you want to come out, you can come out here, and we'll try to get better at the game. I said, you cannot play under my name, and you will not play under my name. I said, we could sit there together and play, and we could talk about hands if you want, but most of that's going to come later on the hand replay thing, and, and, uh, but I'll pay you to sit there, and you know, we'll probably get high and whatever, and you, know, you still want to be a poker player, so this is a, a really good way to get better. Is We'll just try to figure it out. And when he came back, he sat down and played, and he was playing in his account, and he sat down, and the first hand he plays, this is a long time ago now. This is probably going back 10 years, mm -hmm. maybe eight years. Oh, it was five years ago I was on his show, right? When was uh, Black Friday? Uh, I think it was 2011, was it? Or okay, so we're going back seven, we're going back seven years probably, or eight years. Seven years, yeah, seven years. 2010, that's the circa. Uh, he opens up. 4-6 offsuit for the one hole. 
and gets called by the button, and now on an Ace-8-3 rainbow flop, he check raises the guy. Now, I want you to know that I didn't teach him any of this. This is a little different than what I'm used to. I'm just a careful nitty here, you know. But I'm loving it because I'm an outside-the-box guy. I, I'm a self-taught sports better, a self-taught stud player, a self-taught Norman Holden player. Everything's self-taught, so there's no rules, right? There's a Pied Piper Warbly living, which I'll get into after. But So that this kid opening 4-6 offsuit, I'm just like, okay, I didn't teach him this. Let's watch this. So he check-raises the flop, and now, you know, on a on a – a jack turn, he bets like half pot, and I think he made a 40% C bet, which, by the way, no one did back then. No one. Half pot in the turn and probably uh, 70% on the river, and, and the guy folded the river. And I said, well, that worked out. And he kind of smiled, and I said, uh, and I'm not saying this is some extremely well-played hand, but, but, you know, he won the pot. That's all that mattered. And it was with stuff that I never dreamed of doing, and I totally understood it. I said, so I think I understand why you did that. I said, were you really thinking about it that clearly? Because once a guy don't three-bet, right, he ain't got ace, can't raise queen. So, you know, if he has a bad ace and doesn't make two pair, you could probably get him off that. You know, it was it was still kind of – I was surprised the guy even called the turn. But, you know, no one three-barrel bluff back then, or or they really didn't. And they weren't doing it in 25, 50 cents, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was going to work all the time. I'm not saying it would work nowadays. I'm not saying it would work against good players. It might not, but – Back then, it was impressive, given the fact that it was nothing that we ever discussed, nothing we ever talked about. You know, opening 4-6 off in the one hole is out there even for me right now. I, I would respect it, but it's it's a little out there. It's fine. It's all good. I mean, it's all especially back then where you were against ranges. That's where we eventually we got into. So this kid eventually uh, became very Stewie-like. And having known Stewie Younger well, which we talked about last show, the parallels were scary and watching this kid play was just nuts like I, i've never seen anything like it like he just got better and better and better and 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 you know i'm i'm i i not bragging i am a smart guy i'm an ivy league grad i'm not my brain works very logically but you know he was in a different world and i had told him after that first hand he played i said so your battle is not going to be getting good at poker because i understood immediately the ramifications of that hand there that his logic was extremely sound and and his thinking was extremely quick uh, I don't know where it came from because it was very ordinary before that. Something happened in that two weeks, which we'll get to. Uh, I said, you're going to be better than me in about 10 seconds, and you're just going to have to go with it. And and, to the, and and he never did, sadly. He never did do that. You know, uh, I was the guy he looked up to. I was the, you know, the guy who was a self-made guy in, in Vegas as a gambler. And when you're a kid, and I'm not, I don't really remember how old he was then, uh, well, he, that's right. I wouldn't let him come out there until he graduated college. He was 22 at least, uh, maybe even 23 at this point. He went back for his girlfriend's birthday, probably right, or 21st, and so he was 22 probably. Uh, it, it was going to be hard for him. That was going to be the main battle, and I kind of knew that. And I told him immediately, "You just gonna, you just got to go with it, kid. It's all right. It's all right to be better than me. Believe me, I'm not that good at this, so it's it's a good thing." Uh, and he did, and he became amazing, and. I'm going to make this very, very long story very short. Eventually, his bipolar illness showed. And subsequently, I had read a book, or I'm in the process of reading a book, actually. Uh, his doctor had recommended to me, because uh, I saw his doctor for my own needs later, about a bipolar, how bipolar illness can trigger wildly creative good thought. 
And so I kind of witnessed it firsthand. And, and the crazier he got, the better he got at, at poker. It was, it was what he did was so out there. But, you know, it was it, at the time where, where people raised three to three and a half X. I had taught him to raise 2.2. I thought that was better. You know, playing deep stack, why do you want to put any money in free? You'd rather, you know, if you're smart, you'd rather play post and try to figure out what they have and then make your best decision in the river when the pot's biggest. Mm-hmm. All the while keeping it the smallest so, you know, you, you, there, there's no bluffs against you that are going to be hard to deal with, et cetera. Anyway, uh, that was my theory was let's, let's try to keep it small and then, and then, you know, make the best decision we can on the river. That was, that was the thesis we had. Uh, he ultimately bet one-third size seed bets, but he didn't seed bet often. And, and when it was almost 100% seed bet back then where you know, everyone talked about you have to seed bet, you have to seed bet, he preferred to check raise people. Which, by the way, you know, anytime you're doing something counter to the world, is hard to deal with, right? Mm-hmm. And people did have a hard time dealing with. But when you're playing really deep, the check raise kind of defines their hand a little better than just leading, where they'll call with a wide range of hands, but are they going to call a check raise with a wide range of hands? No. And so, he, you know, he just figured all this out, and I, I uh, he eventually, his parents didn't get his illness, and and you know, I, I took care of him the first time. We got him on lithium, which is an old school cure for bipolar illness, and sent him back. And sent him back with a lot of money in his pocket. Like, obviously, he beat poker. That wasn't going to be a problem for him. And, and uh, you know, I paid him for sitting next to me. So, uh, and he did sit next to me. And I have, no, I have no shame in saying he played under my name, but he never did. Not one, not one minute. Uh, I would not lie to a full tilt like others did. But I, I did play a lot of hours on there. Uh, no matter, he eventually, his parents didn't know what to do with him when he went off his meds again. And he got sent out to me. And, and this time, I, I couldn't get him settled. There was something about life that was too hard for me. I remember the first time when he finally stabilized and now you've had this, you know, manic month of, of just doing whatever the fuck you want. And there was some funny stories in, in amongst the, the, the difficulty of dealing with someone like this who was, who had, who had no filters, who had no understanding that there were ramifications to his actions, uh, who would try to get under your skin and, and, and uh, and I had to keep fighting to remember that this is the nicest, purest soul I've ever met in my life, and he's just having a, a you know rough go over right now until we get him stable here, mm-hmm. uh, which is difficult, by the way, when you're dealing with it 24/7, it's, it's almost impossible. So, the second time, he was a couple days away from being stable, and, and he was good enough where he, uh, I had went out and played one night, and I did really well. And I came back, we ran around, and paid bills the next day, and and. Uh, he wanted to go play the next night. I said, go, go for it. Cause I, I knew he was really close to being okay. And he lost that night and never came home. And I remember I had to call him and I said, listen, I'm going to call the police and report my car stolen. I need my fucking car, Mitch. You got to get back here. Mm-hmm. I'm not mad. Come on back. You know, you'll go to sleep, we'll have breakfast and we'll talk about it. Uh, but he refused to take his meds at some point, And the rules were that he couldn't stay with me unless he took his meds. And I sent him back home to Maine and his parents got him thrown into a mental institution where he eventually killed himself. So that's the uh, short version of what happened. But the point I'm making is, is uh, I got to play with this kid who was just wildly creative back then. And I made it my purpose in life that if I ever pursued poker, that I was going to get as good as I could with Mitch's approach to poker, which, by the way, is still totally contrarian to the rest of the world. Right, we live in this Pied Piper world, and I've talked about this on 2 Plus 2 nonstop. Where, you know, so back in the day, it was three to three and a half X open, right? And now they open much smaller. But we got laughed at for opening 2.2 back then. Mm-hmm. Would we get laughed at now? I don't think so. We might think, they might, they might say it's too big, right? Uh, 
Mitch bet one third size C bets. 33 to 40% is what his C betting range was. Uh, He got laughed at back then. What the hell is that accomplished? What are you doing? Like, will we get laughed at now? I don't think so. Again, I don't know what's in vogue, but I've noticed that they've definitely made their C bets smaller. So just because someone does something different doesn't mean it's wrong. And just because the rest of the world does something doesn't mean it's right. And the one thing I encouraged all poker players to do was don't be afraid to have your own thought. Don't be afraid to be wrong with your own thought even. Because if you're just going to copy what the rest of the world does, you're never going to be as good as them. Because they already have it down pat and they're teaching you what they think is right. Mm -hmm. So by copying them, you're going to be a lesser version of them at all times. So if you can think of some creative thing or something that might work against player A or player B or or this nit or this wild man, go for it, man. Don't be afraid to, to get your own you know, creativity out there. And if that's not your gig, fine. But if, if there's any chance that it is, just do it. So I will repeat the same lesson here, and I just have. And anyway, so I, now that I'm playing poker for a living, and in fact, I've switched over from 2040 stud to 2-5 no limit, I am trying to uh, groove Mitch's thought as best I can, and I'm getting better, so that's the good news. So how are you finding that transition? Well, the, the, it's kind of cool because I almost have, like, purpose left. You know, the battle of life sometimes is how do you get through the day mm. without your mind going to places it shouldn't. And I wake up and have purpose every day because when you're broke, you got to go win. And, you know, when you have a $3 million home and a Ferrari in the garage and the knowledge that you have this college basketball season for five months a year where you're going to make X number of dollars and that X number of dollars is, is going to be rather significant, then it's a great lifestyle. Don't get me wrong. I got to spend summers in Maine. I got to help everybody out. I got to do whatever the fuck I wanted when I wanted, and it was all brilliant. And, you know, holding on to the house too long was not brilliant, and having the market continue to crash was not brilliant, and then the game got tougher and I couldn't make what I once did. That should have been almost expected, but I didn't expect that. And, you know, you end up selling the house for next to nothing, holding on to it too long, so you spent all this money maintaining it and, and paying the mortgage, etc. And that's how you end up broke. And then I made poor decisions after. And so now I end up living in a dump in near Foxwoods. Uh, but it's, it's, it's kind of like a new challenge late in life. And how many people get to do that? I'm 59 years old now, and now I'm trying to conquer poker. For the first time in my life, I'm trying to conquer 2-5 No Limit. And luckily, Foxwoods games aren't overly difficult, and, you know, even me not playing well is, is good enough. Uh, but it's been kind of fun. I've actually met a uh, – there was a kid who kind of gravitated towards me in these games, and it took a couple conversations for me to finally ask him. I said, listen, you know, most people in there, A, sort of know me, but B – don't think I'm any kind of no limit player yet. You know, you seemed wanting to talk to me. Like, uh, like you made it a point to go out of your way to say hello and say, I saw you on TV. And despite my glaring at you and say, shut the fuck up, you know, you continued that onslaught and, you know, and after we played all night for two nights, I was really willing. We went and had breakfast and I, then I kind of talked to him. And then a couple breakfasts later, we, we've actually become friendly, which is kind of cool. And, and, and this kid, in some ways, uh, is, is reminding me of Mitchell a little bit, so it's, 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 it, it, it's kind of cool in a lot of ways for me. It's actually someone I can talk to intelligently 
Uh, I don't talk to many people. I don't like most people. Uh, I struggle to have conversations with most people, and I'm not in a poker room to make friends anyway. I'm trying to get their money, right? So even though I'm easygoing and, and fun at the table, it, it's not my mission to, to make friends there, especially where I'm one of the older people in the room, right? So it's, it's not going to be a, a comfortable dynamic anyway. But this kid made it clear that he, he wanted to try to talk to me, and, and, and I eventually got out of him that he was a kid who had worked on his poker for a very long time, and, and he was very clearly very, very talented. He thought about the game in a very, very good way. Uh, but when I said, how come me? Like, most people do not picture me as one of the main threats in that room. And he said, well, Mr. Boston, uh, I watch every single player every single hand, and he does. I, I played with him since, and I watched him. He's just like laser-focused, watching every move everyone makes. And he talks to me about how some of the tells he's picked up, and he said, you got to work on this. I said, work on it. Are you out of your fucking mind? I said, you know the cliche, you can't teach an old, old dog new tricks? He said, this would be very, very difficult for me to learn. I said, but I appreciate your pointing it out, and we'll, we'll talk about it soon. Uh, but he had, said very, he had said to me, he said, well, so you played a hand once and your action was automatic and after I thought about it your action was automatic and it was correct but it took me a few seconds to come up with the right answer and I and I you know uh, you know one time doesn't mean anything but the third or fourth time later when you just acted so quickly and so properly I knew there was no coincidence and that you're someone I might want to talk to I said well that's pretty that's pretty strong actually like that's that's actually really profound right that that I arrived at the right answer instantly and that he was aware of that, that's, that's pretty strong. Uh, I then told him that's my best trade and my worst trade at the same time, is I just naturally think well logically. I think logically well, I should say. But I also have never trained myself with any kind of process to doing that. So sometimes when I get lost, I don't take the time out to, to, to arrive at the right answer. And that's when I fuck off money. So it's actually my best trade and my worst trade. I'm, um, I, I was born with a, a good mind. So genetically, I'm, I'm, I'm got dealt a good hand, uh, but it gets in the way a lot too. And so, having met this kid and, and talked a little poker, and uh, it, it's he made me aware number one that I, I that he had that he had talked to every good player in the room, but I was the first person that was on his level that understood a lot of stuff just by by uh, instinct that was correct. And, you know, I, I don't know what's right and wrong to the rest of the world. I just know what's right or wrong to me, right? I've taught, I made that clear. Uh, but he knows what's right or wrong with the rest of the world because he's read all about it. And then I told him a little bit about how I actually think the game should be played. And he's like, whoa, you know. And I said, listen, kid, I know you like to open your mouth at the table. You say one fucking word to anyone, I'm going to fucking kill you. All right? Because I'm, I'm like handing you the keys to a vault here that, that, you know, I'm not saying I have something totally profound because I don't. You know, there's a lot of people that go down this path, but not a lot of people make it to do well and all. And, and I just kind of like stopping it there. So it, it's the transition to quitting stud to trying no limit was difficult because if you rank the stud players in the world, I'd be up there for sure and, and wouldn't even argue it. If you rank the no limit players in the world, I'm not up there, not even close. I'm thrown in the middle there with the rest of the pack, right, of guys who maybe can win and maybe can't depending on the difficulty of the game. And that's where I'm at. And I accept that, and it's all good. You know, the idea is to get better and, and, and beat the games. And and, and uh, that's what I'm finding cool now is this new challenge. And now I have someone to 
maybe go on the journey with a little bit who can maybe point out where I'm point out something that could be better for me uh, where I've never had anyone in my life to do that except for Mitch and, and Mitch is no longer here. So I, I don't have any more. And, and he had a really hard time teaching me anyway. He, he just couldn't be the student when I was his teacher and the dynamic was just too difficult for him. And, and he just couldn't teach. He said, I'm just doing what you told me. I'm just tweaked it a little bit. I said, Mitch, I said, you tweaked it more than a little bit. Like, you know, you've just taken it and twisted it around. I said, I understand what the concepts are saying. I really do. But, you know, what I taught you was nothing to do with raising four, six offsuit in the one hole. And then, you know, three betting your entire range, et cetera, et cetera. I did not teach you that. But the overall concept of trying to define their hand and, and, and keep the pot small at the same time, that, that was in, in Mitch's uh, game. So I'm getting a little long-winded here, but I, I hope that kind of answers it in a very, very long-winded way. So that's where I'm at. I'm, I'm, I'm playing 2-5 November for a living. I do have stud to fall back upon uh, where I'd be a favorite every time, but stud is such a swingish game. And I take it very personally when I lose. And I was going home like crying some nights when I just got sucked out on hand after hand after hand after hand. And part of the dilemma with seven-card stud is, is when the players make a bad play in five, when the bet doubles, it's not that bad. Yes, maybe they're a three-to-one dog, but the pot's laying them that or close to it. Mm-hmm. So they're never too far off the beaten path, even when they're playing bad. And that creates a very, very swingish game, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, pair of a pair and studs, nine to five, pair of a pair, no limits, four and a half to one. Just that one sentence there says a lot. So the bell curve was not working my way, and I got sucked out on hand after hand after hand after hand or, or whiffed my straight flush draws, which, by the way, I would gamble to the nth degree because uh, flush draws play really well at, at Foxwoods where a lot of pots of multi-way where a lot of people play any three cards, flush draws become super, super strong. So I would gamble them to like no one else in the room. And when you whiff them, you know, again, it creates a, a, a downslide that's magnified. And <clears throat> it got to the point where I, I, I just said, fuck it, let me just play no limit. I, I played a few no limit home tournaments and cashed every single one of them. So why not try it? It's not like I'm a complete idiot. It's not like there's any good players in this room. It's two five five hundred max. Any good players are long gone, right? They're seeking bigger games. Is it the popularity? Oh, I, I can hear myself back, Alan, if you turn the speaker down slightly. Um, hello, hello. Yeah, that's yep. better. That's better. Um, is it a lot to do with the the field in terms of the app? Well, just studs not a game that's run in any local casinos here uh, or whatever. It's all it's all no limit hold'em. You might get a dealer's choice game one night where stud will be involved or Portland, <laughs> Omaha, etc. So is it to do with the field? Is there's more games uh, for hold'em running and maybe the average player is weaker than the average stud player as well. Has that sort of helped your decision? No. No? The uh, stud games are super weak there. Uh, right. And the reason being, when I played stud at, at, in, in Vegas, I started in 1983 at the Golden Nugget. The, that was, it, was, it was either stud or it was, or it was limit hold'em, and it was mostly stud. And these were guys that were playing it for years. And there was Danny Robeson who was at the forefront back then, a name you I'm sure, you know, that, yeah. that became known a little bit. And there were other players who were absolutely fantastic who people wouldn't know. And, you know, my hero probably was Tommy Kress, who, who passed away recently. And just an amazing player, but, you know, just genius, really. And, and, but genius and stud is genius in other games because it's limit. You know, it's just, it's just a little different. But, you know, when these guys just 
no matter what you did, they, they, they pinpointed your hand. It was just, it was really pretty special. And, and, you know, they never, ever missed a bet and just, just totally just knew what they were doing to the, you know, to like a hundred percent. And, uh, so when a game's played nonstop, like no limit eventually was the game evolves, right? Like even talking about when it was three to three and a half X opener and, you know, three quarter to pot size C bets, you know, now it's, uh, yeah, you, you see know, people even, opening even, min raise now is in vogue, right. you know, 2X. Oh, well, like I said, yeah. we raised 2.2 and we laughed at, mm-hmm. and we made one third size pot bets. And then, you know, following a three bet, we, we'd make a much bigger bet in the turn. And that's now in vogue. I'm sure that I, 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 I just, uh, a Matt Berkey, Matt Berkey blog about that, where he talked about that's kind of in vogue now. Yeah. We had three bet, bet small on the pot and then really big on the turn, if you know, try to price them out of certain hands, I guess, and make it really hard and, and then obviously really define their hands or, or whatever reason they have. I, I, I could probably name a lot of them. But, but again, where everyone just thinks this is right, why do it that way? I, I just – but we were doing that six years ago. So, the, again, the point is, six years ago, we laughed at for that, and now they do it. So now it's okay. Yeah. Those two sentences don't go hand in hand. It was okay six years ago. You just didn't know it. So, you know, I'm just going to hammer home that open-minded thing because it's really, really important. Back to your question about, yeah, there's more no-limit games, and, but no, I'm the best player in, the stud, in stud in that room probably. Yeah. And the players aren't any good. And, and, and the lesson I was getting at there is when I played stud, that was the game that was in. That was the most popular game, so the players got good at it. Like no limits, good now, and these kids are way better now than they were, you know, ten years ago, right? They're much more knowledgeable. It's been broken down even with computers, I guess, you know, and and they go over every situation and work their asses off on it nonstop, and you know, even playing online is things to tell you what the other person. I don't know. I don't. I I won't talk about it because I really don't know. But you know, I the message message gotten across. Yeah. Uh, so with stud being the game in vogue. There were certain players that were just terrific, and I got to learn from them by playing with them. It wasn't me studying the game; it was me playing with them and seeing what they did, and trying to figure out why they did it. There was no one at Foxwoods ever to do that. Where Foxwoods opened in the early '90s, I think, or, or uh, late '90s, or either. Well, they said it's 25th anniversary, so yeah, '92 it opened. There was no good stud players here to learn from. So there's there's good at best. There's no great. There was no Danny Robeson's, Tommy Cress, or, or uh, you know, Artie Cobbs, or, or some of those great names from the past, Jeff Sandow, that, that are no longer with us, uh, to learn from. And when there's no one to learn from, you're not going to get any better. So the stud players here are good to bad, mostly bad, and even the good players are very exploitable. So, yeah, it, sh- it should be an absolute picnic for me. But like I said before, it's a very swingish game, and when the bell curve isn't working your way, especially where I'm thought of as one of the better players in stud, it, it really affected me in, in a bad way. And I said, screw it, let me try no limit. And I won about 15 times in a row playing no limit. I said, why the fuck would I ever want to play stud? You get your money in good at no limit, you're going to win. You're ahead in stud, you're ahead peanuts, and they're, they're, never, they're never really taking a bad price. Mm-hmm. So your edges are really small. And when those small edges don't hold up, you get crucified, but big edges and no limit tend to hold up. So you get it in aces against kings, you win. You know, you win most of the time. Mm-hmm. You get it in ace jack against king jack against a short stack on a jack high flop, you win. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, stud, you have aces against kings, and and you're going to the river and you're holding your breath. It's uh, 
so the dynamic of the game is is much more suited to winning at no limit than at than at stud, or actually probably more, most limit games for that matter. Right, right, right. So, so in regards to sports betting, um, are you doing that part time just now? I, I assume not you're all still. I've been, I haven't made a sports bet in ages. You've not made a sports bet in ages. Not right. in ages, and I'm not sure what I'm doing with college basketball this year. I've I've had a few offers on the table, uh, but if I do college basketball, I almost can't play poker, and, and you know I'm I'm kind of like. I think I'm hinting to the fact that I'm kind of enjoying this. Yeah. And and like I said, I've actually I actually have a friend that I can actually talk to now, which is one more than I've had in ages here. Uh, I've been here over a year, and I really don't talk to anybody. I have some old friends from Vegas that come in and play once in a while, so we have dinner. But you know, that's once a week or once every two weeks. Uh, here's someone who I can actually try to get better with, and more importantly, I can help him get a lot better because. I don't always think that well at the table, but away from it, I'm not going to make too many mistakes. Mm-hmm. That's 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 my dilemma. I like to, I like to be a clown at the table, and sometimes sometimes that get that gets in the way of the thought process. You can't be a clown and think logically at the same time. Yeah, you can, but, it, but it's but it's something you have to really learn. And I'm probably too old for grooving that. Yeah, so, I find that sometimes in hindsight, you can always analyze, you know, and like you say, sometimes it's just the speed of action, your thought, and then you make the move. Rather than give yourself that, you know, the proverbial count to five or count to ten, and really, you know, in the heat of the moment when you're playing, sometimes it's your brain's processed it, and in the moment you've logically figured out and you put the chips out. But there was another variable or something that you've not slowed down and taken in, and but you see it after, you know. Correct. I don't, I, I don't mean you being results orientated. I mean just rushing. So no, I agree. Totally yeah. agree. Yeah, I do that myself sometimes. You're yeah. a human being. Of course you're going to do it, and of course I'm going to do it. It doesn't matter how smart you are, you're going to do it. Yeah. You can't take it all in. It's not, you're not trained to be sitting at a poker table when you're nine years old, right? Yeah. So your instinct isn't to soak it all in. And if you haven't played live for X number of thousands of hours, you're going to miss things. Mm-hmm. And at my age, and probably even yours, even if you're in your early 30s, when your instinct part of your brain is shut down, which happens right around 25, it's really start closing, and it gets really hard to learn after that. It, it gets hard to, to, get, to create instinct after that. Uh, it's, it's difficult, and you're going to make mistakes, and you're just going to have to accept it. Uh, my, my, my battle is I kind of know what I have to do. I know the process that I want to go through when I'm thinking about a hand, and I just have to go and do it. Uh, and that's where I think, you know, talking to someone, even after the fact, at least if I go astray after the fact, we'll probably arrive at the right conclusion in the proper manner. And the more that happens, the more I think it will happen at the table, at least I'm hoping. And I think if I can think really well at the table, this room is going to be very, very profitable. Because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like I said, two five five hundred max is not creating a market of good players because those players are going to go play bigger elsewhere and make more money. In fact, the game kind of stinks, actually. I, I like deep stack poker. I don't like 100 big blinds. Mm-hmm. But the good news is, you know, sometimes 5 o'clock in the morning, there's people with $1,500 stacks you're playing against, and now, now you can really play poker, and now you can actually have a chance to, to, to make the gigantic win. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so you're not, made, you're not made a sports bet, rather, uh, in a long time. But I do want to just maybe if you could touch on after watching the best of it documentary that I mentioned at the start, I saw you sort of discussing a little bit about your methodology in terms of how you're old school. You use pens and paper, and you were to apply these power ratings. I think you called you know to each team uh-huh. or, or each situation. 
So just for, I mean, I know it's an expansive question and whatever, but for guys that are out there and say they're not wanting to be professional sports bettors, but they just don't want to be the mug punter at the weekend betting on a soccer team or a tennis match or, um, you know, basketball or whatever. What What's your sort of tips for guys on how they can approach it and create their own little sort of rating system or method to even give them a slight lessen their bad edge, you know? Okay, so what I always suggested for people who are kind of layman fans is find the sport you're the biggest fan of and just wing it. And by winging it, I mean trust your gut. And by trusting your gut, I mean if instinctively you see a line on a game and you say, boy, that's really high, then it's too high. Because your instinct or your gut is, and it, obviously that could be really important at the poker table too, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, your instinct is just based on memories of the past, parallel situations where you've seen this all before. And the problem with your gut is it's your subconscious, and your subconscious cannot be verbalized. So when you cannot verbalize it, trusting it is often difficult. But that's what the layman sports better needs to do, because to be a professional, like to be a professional poker player, uh, requires a lifetime of giving, uh, a, a full, full-time job. Uh, so the best approach that I've always told everyone, and I've done this for years, just wing it. If you see a line, just react to it. And if you don't react to it, you're not betting it. If you do react to it, it's too high, it's too low, do it. Don't question it, just do it. And you will win more often than you lose, I guarantee it. Uh, as for how I did it, you know, again, I was self-taught. There was no books on how to bet sports when I first started doing it. So the tools I had available were a sports ticker and my brain. So I would go and watch the sports ticker all night, and the scores would get updated every five minutes on most games. So the 15-minute mark, the 10-minute mark, the 5-minute mark, the halftime. And then the same for the second half. If the game was televised, they'd update it more often. Now, by watching that sports ticker nightly, and I did watch it every night, I was able to recall the flow of every single game being played, including when there's a massive schedule. Somehow I was able to remember it all. Now, you didn't have as many teams to track back then, don't get me wrong. It wasn't as difficult as it sounds, but it was still in retrospect, a pretty good feat that I could remember how every game played out, you know, just by five-minute intervals of scores and, and just remember what the last score was and just know how every game played out. And through that five-minute update of scores, I had this picture of how the game evolved. And what I would do, and I, I understand this now, is So a game's close after 5 minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 25 minutes, 30 minutes, and now the better team starts pulling away. And now with 5 minutes to go, the game's on 10. And they win by, let's say, 22. Okay, well, that that really wasn't that bad a game for that team. Even though they lost by 22, they hung in for, you know, 75% of the game. So I would remember their breaking point came against a, play, a team this good, came with about five minutes to go, where they finally just snapped. So let's say that team that hung in with a really good team for most of the game on the road is playing a lesser team at home, and they're the underdog. Well, if they could put that effort out on the road against this team and hang in there for most of the game, they're certainly going to be able to beat this team at home. And they're getting points? Okay, we got a bet. It was strictly 
and, and I, I, I had my power rating so I'd know what I thought the line should be, uh, what the power rated line should be, but I allowed my instinct of breaking points and how long did they hang in there and they, did they make a run after the game was over and, boy, that's impressive, etc. I would take all these little inferences of strictly how the game played out and put it to work. And, again, this was strictly subconscious. This was me remembering stuff that I didn't know I remembered. Yeah. And, you know, when I had a really big bet, it was almost all from the gut. I just made sure that that my power rating matched up what the line would be. So, if my, if I, so for instance, if I power rated a game, uh, Team A four-point favorite over Team B, but I knew Team A was going to kill him, if the line was four or less, I would bet it, because I knew four was the fair line of the game based on my power ratings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know what the edge is sometimes because it's all my gut, right? But I knew at four that I had an edge because my gut was telling me they're going to kill him. If the line was more than four, I wouldn't bet it, even though if I knew they were going to kill him because, you know, I don't know if I have an edge anymore. Yeah. The line should be four according to my power rating. So I, I would use my power ratings as a guide for my gut. See, I uh, find that fascinating because guys like yourself who are undoubtedly, I mean, you've you crushed college basketball for years and years, you know, and you did it for a living and you, you walked the line for you know, want of a better phrase. And I find myself, like you say, you said the advice there to the layman, you know, go with your gut, go with your instinct. And I find, you can do. I find that even myself with playing poker, now, the guy that I do the weekly show now on my podcast with, he's a professional poker player and for many years, did very well, um, but then he has made the decision to retire as a professional poker player now. And he is strictly a poker coach. He's crunching the numbers. He's running these simulations. And he would say, I would look at concepts like you've mentioned, you know, whether raising this X uh, is, is correct in this play, etc. And he would run these massive computer simulations to then prove himself right mathematically. And I think, like, I was playing in a tournament last weekend and uh, a guy raised, I flattered with Ace-10. And to cut a long story short, I called him on the flop turn and I was check calling River, but he checked the river, and I, I, I had ace high, and I was good. And after it, I thought, like, I, I couldn't really articulate or even think why I was... I, I just felt like I was ahead of his range here. The flop comes, it's missed him, you know, and went with it. Whereas if I dwelled too much on the analytical side and the actual numbers, I could have folded the turn or, you know, whatever, and lost that pot. And I think that's the battle. I think when you're... One of these guys that's strictly from the gut and subconscious levels, all that, whatever way, whatever science says about it, you're actually doing all these calculations somewhere right. in the background. Exactly. And it's having the belief to go with that. And I think when the dilemma comes is when you start to be aware of the statistics and the numbers and the pot odds, etc., there's this like inner battle that goes on of like, yeah, the math probably says I shouldn't here, but something's telling me I'm right. And Phil Helmuth, I mean, love him or hate him or whatever, he's getting a lot of stick, but he's still the guy with the most amount of bracelets and uh, nobody can doubt his No Limit Holding tournament game. You know, I, I want to be specific on that. And um, he's I, I totally agree with that. I think he plays bad players better than anybody on the planet. Yeah, and he's getting a lot of stick just now on Twitter and these forums, etc., and they're all saying he's drawn dead against these German guys and he's mathematically this and that. And he talks about, I mean, he sends himself up. He says it's white magic, his reading ability, etc. 
But there, there's undoubtedly something in that. Like, we're talking about a subconscious here in terms of reading players or even, like, if a line's out, you know, out, out of sync with a, on, on a game or whatever. And I suppose it's just having the faith to go with it, isn't it? Rather than, you know... Um, right, so, so where I'm at with poker is I actually do have a process where I can actually evaluate the hand and think about it. Yeah. And the kid, the kid taught me this. I did get it out of him before he... Before he, before he said goodbye, and it was it, it was while he was sick too. I was so proud of myself because I, I didn't. He evaluated flop so quickly. I was just trying to get him to teach me, but he couldn't. And finally, I got the right question out. I said, "When the flop hits, what are you thinking?" And he answered me. I said, "Okay, thank you. I got it finally." Mm-hmm. And so I do have this process of of how to going how to how to evaluating a flop and, and matching it up with with the action that has transpired, the pre-flop action and the post-flop action, and arriving at the right conclusion uh, without trusting, well, having to trust my gut. And that's where I'm at with poker is, is getting my brain to slow down enough to go through the process of doing it and not just being a mad dash to, to making a bet or doing it, which is what I'm used to. Because when I play stud, it's all, I'm on autopilot. I know what they have, and I'm just, you know, I'm just going to make a bet. There's no thought ever. I've seen it all before. It's, it's, a, very, it's, a, it's a game I've played a hundred million hands up. There's not much that's really, you know, interesting about it, especially with bad players. They're not going to do anything that, that's going to be, you know, very profound. Mm-hmm. So I'm on autopilot. I never have to really think. And switching over to no limit, where I like to do everything super fast, uh, which is what the kid noticed. I don't know if he's a kid. I mean, he's probably in his 30s. He's not, but everyone to me is a kid. So I, I don't mean to say kid like he's 10. <laughs> you know, he's probably 30-ish. Uh, where he was impressed by how quickly and how properly I got to the right conclusion. Uh, yeah, that's good, but it's also bad because when I don't quickly arrive at the right conclusion, I get lost. And like you said, if I don't have a gut that I can trust and I have no reason to trust my gut and no limit, then now I'm in trouble. Mm-hmm. So when you're not trusting your gut and you don't have a process to, to fall back upon and you don't have the right conclusion at your head immediately, that that's where kind of where I'm at, but I'm I'm trying to work my way out of it. So, uh, trusting your gut is super important, but when you have some process to that can get you the right answer, it's uh it's probably better because now you can actually verbalize what you mean. So, so for instance, uh, what I was really happy about the other night was I finally. So I've been trying to open up my game a lot because the really the best way to play Foxwoods is there's players A, B, C, and D who are going to lose, and then players E through H or E through I who are going to win. And A, B, C or A, B, C, and D are going to lose their money to the other players. That's just the way it is in no and hold. When you're bad, you're going to lose. And that's not the case in stud, as I, I talked about before. So being a triple-breasted nit and peddling the nuts wins. And that's kind of sad because it's very simplistic and, and very, almost very stupid. I mean, there's parts of it that are good, knowing which hands to get away from that, that kind of look good that aren't. Uh, and that, that's kind of instinctive and, and, you know, logical. But really just being a nit is what wins in that game and, and just beating the bad players and being careful against the, the better players. But that's not good enough for me. And, and, you know, when the game dries up, which it has been a lot over the, even the year I'm here, uh, this place called Twin Rivers Open in Rhode Island, it's, it's a, it's, it's a shithole and it's an hour away and it's a poorly run room, but the games are better there, so people are going there. You know, some of the good players are going there, but some of the bad ones too. Uh, 
So the, the money has shriveled up a little bit here. Well, what happens when it really shrivels up is I'm playing against the regulars. And you have to figure out how to beat them. And you're not going to beat them by playing the same way they are, by being a nit. You're going to beat them by being a little more creative, by opening up your game a little bit, which with 100 big blinds is a little difficult, right? Yeah. But it's still doable. And so after talking to the kid and letting him know what Mitch taught me uh, and him having this whole world open up to him and, and now him trying to, you know, help a little bit by knowing what he knows. And he's, he's very well-read and learned, and I'm sure he would know who your regular guest is. I'm sure he knows him. Uh, he, we've had some interesting discussions, and it's actually kind of cool to, to, to be in that spot. But what I did was I overdid the creativity, and I lost sight of the fact that I'm still there trying to win. I'm not trying to be clever. Mm-hmm. So I got too clever and got too creative and, and bluffed off too much money. I, was, you know, I, I just lost sight. You know, you, if you're good, you can invent hands that they could have that you can still bluff and beat, right? But that's not what you're trying to do. That's forcing it. It has to happen in the flow of things. And so finally, the other, you know, I tried bluffing quads in a tournament when I was in a really good shape in the tournament. What the, I said, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah, maybe the, maybe the check raise was good in the turn, but I don't have to pay off the river. That's just silly. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just, it was just I was losing sight of the fact that I'm there to win and, 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 and not, be, not be clever. Yeah. And so last night, the other night, when I, 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 there was one hand that came up that, you know, I probably got bluffed. And we even talked about it more this morning uh, at breakfast. And, but I didn't care. It was just the fact that I arrived at the right conclusion very quickly and very properly. That, and it's a really simple hand. It's really an ABC hand. But, you know, again, it, it's thinking about it in, in ways that, that some might not have. Where, you know, everyone's this Pied Piper that I talked about where, you know, and your friend runs all these computer simulations to, to figure out what's mathematically right. Mm-hmm. And I would challenge what's mathematically right is not necessarily being right, right? You could make arguments. Like, you know, if someone three-bets you every time you open... And if someone flats every time you open, you're certainly going to play different against those two guys, right? I would assume. Yeah. I would assume there's a proper way that's good against both of them. There's some happy medium that, that works against both of them. But there's ways that work better against the guy with three bet you a lot. In other words, opening up your four betting range would probably be a good start just off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. I don't have to worry about it at Foxwoods because no one does it. That's the good news because <laughs> that's hard to deal with, right? And, uh, but, Again, the guy who flats a lot behind you, you just you're just going to get him eventually. He's just you know he just he's giving away his money pre-flop often enough, but you're going to get him. He probably gives it away post-flop too. And if I'm talking nonsense, I'm sorry. You know, it's just this is it's just what I'm thinking off the no, top no, of my head no, here. No, no, I'm uh, with you. So yeah, it's good to know the math, but isn't it better to know the player? And and maybe online it's better to know the math, and live it's better to know the player. I, I think, uh, and, and the kid has definitely talked about you know when he just hones in on what every player does. He was telling me about some of these tells that he has where if they're bluffing, they might do this, 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 and this. And it's like, Jesus Christ, what are you, are you out of your fucking mind? Like, but that's really awesome, actually. Yeah. That he's trying to find other ways to win besides just watching his hands out. It's, it's, it's actually killer. It's brilliant, actually. It's the uh, old thing about paying attention. It comes down to just, you said, laser focus and paying attention. If you pay attention to every hand in your surroundings, um, straight away, if you see a guy that's, I don't know, you're playing live and he's lost a few pots and you can see him visibly steaming, then you're going to play different against him regardless of what the maths or the book says because, absolutely, you know, it's a new variable. That's, uh, whereas online is a lot more mathematical because you can't see them, you can't see the situation. I've been in live card rooms where you hear people arguing on their phone at the break and they come back to the table and you're like, you know the guy's steaming, you know, because he's been arguing with his spouse or a friend or whatever. 
And you're going to play differently against players like that than if someone's sitting there and they're not doing that, you know. Exactly, and 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 you know, like like the the, the kid actually again came up with something pretty profound. He said, uh, you know, well, you knew he had that. I said, no, I didn't know he had that. How can you be so stupid? He said, because that's the way they think. I said, well, how the fuck do I know how they think? And he finally texted me the other morning. I think I saved it. Uh, what the hell is it? So he texted me the following, because uh, it dawned on me why it's tough for you to understand their levels of thinking. You started holding them at a very high level logically, so you didn't have the steady upward learning curve that I did. You just naturally play at an extremely high level. I once played like them and grew slowly, so I can relate to their levels of thinking much better and remember how I used to think at each level and then apply it quickly versus that opponent. Like, right, he just hit it the nail on the head. Yeah, yeah. Like, like I, I, my mind's always worked logically in a good way. Now, don't get me wrong, it works horrible in many ways. It's just logically it's always been there. That's how I was able to teach myself how to bet sports. That's how I was able to learn seven stud and actually tweak it in ways that other people, you know, I actually play stud a lot different, a lot different than than the masses. Uh, and wish someone in this room would would want to learn so I could teach him. So I wish some young kid would play stud so I could teach him. I, I'd love to pass it along to somebody. Uh, the uh, so yeah, he hit the nail on the head. Where I don't know how to think stupid, but. Somehow he can, because I don't know how he, I don't know how he ever thought like them. And, and I said, you actually trained yourself. I, I asked him about this morning. I said, you, you've actually trained yourself to, to think this well logically. And he said, yeah. I said, you have no idea how impressive that is. That, you know, logical thinking is extremely difficult. It's simplistic once you understand it, but it's extremely difficult to, to figure out on your own. Mm-hmm. And. You know, it really, really kind of blew me away. Like, you know, if you're just an average thinker and all of a sudden you're thinking at levels that are very, very, very high, that's that's absolutely amazing. Well, also to think at levels of logic that are low as well in terms of of other players, their logic. Right, and that's because he started there. I mean, yeah. he's so dead on. I never was there, so I don't know what that is. Yeah. He hit the nail on the head, and you know, I don't know. I don't know. Why I'm getting so personal here, but uh, it's just like kind of food for thought. It's yeah. an interview. No, it's it's, it's for the interview when I guess it's, it's, uh, it's probably a little boring actually, but sorry. Um, no, it's it's all, it's all gems. It's great. Um, what I was going to say, there's another bullet point I got here, and it was uh, obviously this year Billy Walters, famous sports better in uh, Vegas, and friend of mine, and friend of yours, and I believe you did used to work with him in some capacity as well. Yes, sir. Um, I noticed that he was sentenced to five years, but I don't think he's. I think the last article I read was. He was due to give himself up to authorities or present in October this month, which is obviously sometime soon. Um, just what, uh, you got any good Billy Walter stories, a bit about the man? I mean, I know he's done a 60 Minutes interview and stuff, but on the whole, he's a closed book. There was going to be an autobiography, uh, not an autobiography, but a biography um, a few years ago, but it's never came out yet, and I don't know if it's been shelved. Uh, maybe with All right, so he called me, he actually called me during the trial. Okay. So yeah, we are very friendly, and he's he's been a huge supporter of mine for years. He's been almost like dad in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. like I am to some of these kids. He's been like with me, and uh, you know, and it's just it's just in a giving manner. There's no there's no ulterior motive or anything. Yeah, I can't give him anything, uh, except friendship. And 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 when push came to shove, I actually wrote a a, a fantastic letter for him to give to the judge that his lawyer requested any friend. You know, I wrote something absolutely brilliant 
I thought. And, and he was like, wow, you know, his lawyer was like, wow, like, who wrote this? Like, uh, it didn't help, obviously, so I feel like I failed. But, you know, he they had come after him, I think, three times prior, and he was innocent all three times. He was innocent this time, too. This is a man who would not ever in a million years take a phone call having someone tell him to buy this stock and then call a stockbroker two minutes later say, buy this stock. Mm-hmm. Number one, the money doesn't mean anything. Number two, he's way too careful. I remember when I first started working for him in 1992, I think it was. I think I started at 91 working for him. In 92, I said, uh, what's going on, Mr. Walt? He said, well, Red, I just spent a half million dollars on a lawyer. I said, huh? He said, yeah, i got to make sure what we're doing is legal, right? So in 1992, he spent a half million dollars on a lawyer to make sure that his gambling operation was legal. Mm-hmm. A half a million in 1992. Yeah. Like, I don't know how his lawyer doesn't bring that up. Like, you think this is a guy that would, that would take a fucking phone call? He'd be stupid enough to take a phone call and then, and then buy a stock or sell a stock or whatever he was told to do? There's not one fucking chance in a million that he is guilty of this. Not one. And it, it's, really, it's really kind of discouraging. He, uh, he's a, as best I understand, he's kind of a street guy, pool hustler. Uh, maybe didn't have a, a, a great... Uh, family life early on in life and kind of went out on his own and figured things out on his own. Uh, when he got to Vegas, he admitted to me he had gone broke one day because I had a really bad New Year's Day once uh, and lost most of my profits for the football season. And he, like dad would, called me to try to calm me down, you know, mm-hmm. relayed the story of when he got drunk one night and lost all his money playing blackjack. And here he is with his wife and he's broke. And now what? Mm-hmm. And he said, Red, I overcame it. You know, I just learned from it and you should do the same and, and got you. You know, thank you. And, so when he was put, he, he somehow became a part of this computer group, and computers in the 80s weren't that relevant. But there was a guy who played softball, and he tried to figure out the ratings of all the softball teams, and he did that through computers and through a program of some sort. And he actually said, well, if it works for softball teams, why not for college football teams and college basketball teams? And he was so far ahead of the, of the world with his concept uh, that they just killed it. I mean, the lines were so weak. It was just printing money. It really was. I mean, if I was around back then, you know, I would have crushed it too, having the same instinct. So really the, the, the concept number one of sports betting is if team A beats team B by 50 or in a football match, let's say 3-0, does it mean they're 3-0 better than them? No. It just means that game, they won 3-0. Maybe the other team's even better. They just had a bad day. Mm-hmm. If a football team wins by 50, at 50 points better? No. Now, can a computer actually break down the stats and tell you how much better team is A than team B, and, and after a while you kind of do know? Of course. Uh, but back in the 80s, there were no real computers, and it's just like, all right, so team A beat team B by 50, but team A has never really been that good, so what's that mean? Let's kind of ignore it and see what happens. And... You, hear the, you used to hear the term a lot, overreacting. You couldn't overreact to anything. And, and even it's a, it's a good lesson to have in life nowadays, you know, uh, especially if you're in a relationship. You can't overreact to any kind of thing anyone does because it's just going to head to trouble. And, and the same thing with sports betting. If a team has this really good game, it doesn't mean they're really good. It just means they had a really good game that one time. And maybe they'll play even three good games in a row. It still doesn't mean they're good. It just means they had three good games in a row. And, you know, now you can take that concept to the, to the nth degree. And what you finally learn is that, so if you've ever played golf and you played golf for years, you're a, a, a 10 handicap, 
and you go out and shoot 69, does that mean you're a scratch golfer or a plus handicap? No. It means you're a 10 handicap that had a really good day. You're still a 10 handicap. Yeah. And the same thing goes for all sports teams. Just because they had that one good game, there's still a 10 handicap or 20 handicap or a scratch. And in college basketball, there's the teams that are always good and then work your way down till the F-rated teams. And when they have the same coach in the same conference, they're almost always not going to deviate between certain what I call power ratings, but between, you know, how good they could be and how bad they could be. It's it's not going to be that big a gap. Right, right. They have players who have this athletic ability because they can get them into that school, given the academic standards, given how hard they recruit, given how important basketball is. This is how good a player you get. The coach is this good, so that equates to this number. And that number is not going to deviate much as long as that coach is there, unless they change their academic policies, unless they enter a new conference where the recruiting is a little easier to get better players, etc. unless they make some new TV contract, but now they're on TV more and they can pitch that to the kids. You know, there's all these variables, but for the most part, especially back then, you know, teams stayed within certain levels. So when they went and played some game that was out of that level, you had to ignore it. But the line maker didn't ignore it. And that's the biggest fundamental that I understood that, that most of my peers did not. They would say, wow, they played so good last time. Well, you know, I'm like, who cares? I didn't say that out loud because I knew that would just spill the beans, right? But so this computer programmer obviously understood that and understood that in, in ways that he could mathematically break it down better than, than I could, for sure. It so happens when I did college basketball with Mr. Walters, by the end of the year, I got paid the biggest compliment because I had a deal worked out where if I was against their guy, you know, I didn't have to bet. But I was almost never against him. We almost always had the same side, it turned out. But late in the year, it was UAB against Tulsa. I'll never forget this because this was really a key moment in my uh, gambling career. And I'd already been very successful. I mean, but this was like the, the, the uh, cap to it all. Uh, I like Tulsa plus three against UAB, and I knew there was a chance I was what I would call overreacting. But I also knew there was a chance they just got a lot better because I, I had a lot of respect for, for the coach. And so I sent them my facts that I like Tulsa plus three for, you know, X number of, of you know, whatever rating system we had that would not indicate that there was money involved. Uh, there really wasn't money involved. It was just how I did by the end of the year. It was, it was, it was all done in a way that was legal. I, 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 I do remember that to this day. And, but it was a 20 out of 20 rating, let's say. I rated it the highest I could. That's, that's, that's the, uh, it in a nutshell. And they went out and bet Tulsa plus three. But when the game got down to one now, because they had a big falling, and, and uh, he came in and laid one. Mr. Walters did. So he took three, but he also laid one. So when I called the guy I dealt with, I said, should I be on this side? Because very clearly their guy was on UAB minus one. And I was on Tulsa plus three. I was on the opposite side, but at different prices. We could both still be right, right? If the game should be two, we're both still right to some degree. Uh, he said point blank, he said, you know, Red, we don't know who's better, your guy or our guy. You, you, we don't know who's better, you or our guy. So we're just staying even to it. He said, you do what you want. But, you know, we don't know if our guy's even better than you at this point. And when I heard that, I said, you know what, I'm going to go with it, thanks. Mm-hmm. And that was like the the... the that's it. That's a coup de gras, right? I can get no better compliment, better compliment than the guy who's been killing it for all these years 
doesn't know if his handicapper is better than me. Yeah. And I, it turned out I did win that game too. But uh, yeah, that was uh. So Mr. Walters is this street guy who got thrown into this place where he could make a lot of money betting sports, and he his job now was to maximize that ability to earn. And anytime there was an obstacle, like people would follow him, his picks, people would steal his picks. He always figured out a way to uh, eliminate the problem. So I can give one good uh, anecdote. When I first started working for him, the rules are I can't tell anyone what I like, obviously, right? It's none of anyone's business, and I just got to keep my mouth shut. Mm -hmm. But I had a friend on Saturday morning who I, I went to college with, and he just bet $50 a game, and I knew that's like the most he could bet. He had no money. So I tell him what I liked on Saturday morning. It, it wasn't going to affect anything for sure, right? I mean, everything's been bet just about in the market, and, and you know, whatever Mr. Walters had left to bet, his $50 bet wasn't going to get in the way. However, here comes the phone call from Mr. Walters. Ray, do you tell anyone your games? I said, well, no. I said, wait a minute. I do tell a friend who bets $50 a game. He said, well, give him this list of games today. I said, okay, I'll do that. And I gave him the list of games. Not the ones I like, but I gave him the ones that Mr. Walters asked me to give him. Because if the kid is telling somebody anything, he's broken the rules. Because I made it clear to him, you can't say a fucking thing to anybody. Mm -hmm. uh, so if I fuck him over on some games, that's, that's not my problem. That's his for, for fucking me over. And sure enough, a few hours later, he's, Mr. Walters calls me. He says, well, Red, uh, you know, th this crew here just went out and bet these games. And they were the list of games that he had given me to give this kid. I'm saying, uh-oh, I'm sorry, Mr. <laughs> w. You know, like... Like, how the fuck did he find this out? And it turns out, when I called the back, kid back, I said, well, I have a phone call to make. I'll call you back. I'm really sorry. It won't happen again. No problem, Red. You know, it's all, it's all good. He knew my intentions weren't, weren't to, to break our, our contract. That I was just telling a friend who bets nothing that, you know, here's what, here's what, here's what I like. And, it, yeah, I was technically breaking the rules, but he knew there was no malintent. It wasn't like I'm telling a, a competitor what we're doing ahead of us, and, and I'm trying to earn money to it. Yeah. You know, there was no there was no malice involved here. So when I called the kid up, I said, what the fuck are you doing? And he said, what do you mean? I said, listen, you can't hide anymore because I know you're telling somebody. And it turns out he told a friend who told a friend who told someone else. And when he when, when he when he mentioned the friend he told it to, I knew that that was it. Because I knew this guy knew this other crew that bet that game's big. And I said, Bob, you can't do that. I said, I've already been through this, you know, with you a hundred times that I told you how important it is to keep your fucking mouth shut. Well, he don't. I said, I don't care. It's not your business to do that. You know, you're compromising my, my potential big livelihood here. And you're compromising my name, more importantly. And, but Mr. Walters found out about a guy who bets 50 fucking dollars a game, and he figured out that it was me. He has a million people working for him. He always figured it out. He always figured out how to, how to do it right, how to make it better, how to hide things, how to trick people. And I remember the quote I gave him one day. I said, uh, you know, your cunning is very impressive. And he just laughed because <laughs> he, he's just this triple smart guy, but in a, a, in a streetwise but at the same time very logical way. He was very, very creative. He was no sports handicapper, but he could handicap people. And he could figure out how to take any situation and make it good for himself. And a guy like that is never, ever, ever, ever going to take a stock tip from a guy who was an embezzling scumbag and go and buy or sell that stock. 
the guy who donates $40 million so a hospital can build a cancer wing doesn't care about $32 million that he made from stock market trades. Believe me, he doesn't. You know, especially in his 70s now where he's ready to retire and enjoy himself. It's just not a good fit. So the fact that he sentenced, the fact that he had no appeal is really, really discouraging and really a sad commentary on, on where our country has gone. And the final thing I wrote to him, because I, I do believe he's, he's going to Florida now to go to jail, I said, you know, well, I hope that you put on paper this whole process of how the government has come after you, how evil and corrupt our government is, how rotten our country is, and I hope you put that on paper and have a book by the time your time is up that someone could now go to press and you can enlighten the world as to what really goes on behind the scenes in this country because this is really, really despicable and, and, and painful and hurtful and, and, you know, just keep your head up to that, you know, keep stay positive and think about that day where you expose all the nonsense you, that you've seen firsthand and, you know, hopefully that'll make time go past Pastor, and, and, he, and he wrote back, you know, I appreciate your friendship, Brad. Thank you a lot. And, and I do plan on uh, getting something on paper. So I'm looking forward to that. If he, if he lives, he's in his 70s now, and I think he said he has to do 33 months. Uh, I think he has, uh, still has some appeals available that obviously, you know, money's not a problem. He's going to investigate. Uh, but it may take a while for them to get ruled on. And uh, it's really mind-boggling what, what this supposed land of the free has become. Yeah, I know that we have it better than a lot of countries, but that doesn't mean it's right, given how it was in the 60s and 70s here. And, you know, when you read our Constitution and our, our, our Declaration of Independence and that they had it all down, what was going to happen, because it happened to them when they uh, moved here. And, and, you know, I'm not saying they were nice people. They're a bunch of Indian-killing scumbags that, that started, that started the, the destruction of this country. Uh, they were evil fucks that, that, that ran our country, but they're also smart evil fucks. And, uh, you know, the documents that they wrote were, are very profound and, and to this day resonate. And the fact that these politicians say, well, that was the 1700s that don't count, wrong. The concepts are still the same of, you know, giving power to people that don't deserve it and what they do with that and, and how they take that power and use it for ill gains and don't care about the people anymore, but only care about their ill gains and the gains of their, of their uh, corporate friends there. So now we have Monsanto not only making GMO corn, but GMO wheat and GMO peanuts, et cetera, et cetera. How the fuck could that ever be good? Mm. Ever. How could genetically, genetically manipulated products ever be good? Yet here they are, and they're all on the boards of, of our government. So, you know, we can't win. Nothing we can do is any good anymore. And now they have the right to go after some guy who's innocent because he's not one of the corporate CEOs of some billion-dollar company, yet he's made, you know, literally hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah. And by the way, he's paid his taxes, because that's the one thing he told me is pay your taxes. He said, you're probably going to be successful, Red. Just pay your taxes. That'll save you a lot of aggravation. Yes, it's disgusting. Yes, it's a lot of money. Just do it, because it's going to save you trouble in the long run. And it did. I was, you know, gamblers get audited here nonstop, but I never got audited because I sent so much fucking money to our government. It was sickening that check I had to write at the end of, in, in April, but I was told to do it, so I did it. And it probably saved me a similar fate that... Where, you know, where I know Howard Letter maybe isn't like, but he's gone through hell with this government. That whole full tilt thing was, was a fucking farce. Uh, and I hope he does tell a story one day about what really happened. I hope he does. Uh, I think he'll come out looking a lot better than he does right now. The uh, I'll end it right there. That's, uh, that's enough. But point made is, yeah. is this country's completely lost its way, and, and 
when a guy like Mr. Walters is found guilty in his 70s of something he didn't do, and it was a, a complete witch hunt from start to finish. And, you know, I only know that he's innocent because I know the man. You know, and, and it, it's, it, there's no amount of greed that would get him to do something as stupid as this where potentially he could end up in jail. He understands all that. Yeah. Um, okay, we're approaching the end of our time. Uh, you can follow Alan on Twitter. Uh, Alan, sorry, I can hear myself again. If you could just turn the speaker down or it must be coming through another. Yeah, I don't know. Uh... No, it's fine now. It's maybe just on the, the break or something. I don't know the connection. Um, you can follow Alan on Twitter. He's always good value. He's at BostonRed88. And I, I did want to end it with this. I mean, Alan, I've really enjoyed today again, and thanks very much for you know for your time. I'd love to have you back on in a few months again for a catch-up to see how the 2-5 grind's going and how things are developing, etc. Um, yeah, you can just stop there. me too when I get long-winded off the beaten path, because I just kind of babble here, and I don't know if anyone gives two fucks about what I'm saying. You know, it's just... No, we do, and it's great to have, you know, I guess, as articulate as yourself, talk about things, and um, no, 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 you're, don't worry, I would jump in, and there's no, okay, good, good, there's good, no good. part done, of me that's done, ever done. thought jump in. <laughs> um, I, I, will, I do want to end on this, because it's one of, the, as I say, you're great value on Twitter, um, but this is one of the best tweets I've ever read on Twitter, certainly from yourself, anyway, and it's, some guy tweeted, um, Okay, in NYC for a week with my nephew. Neither of us have been hit me with the must-do list. Uh, feel free to exclude standard sightseeing. And Alan replied, show interest in his words, little else matters. And uh, I just thought that was fantastic. And that kind of sums up the, the Alan Boston that, you know, I, me and Alan sometimes talk through direct message on Twitter and stuff. And I we've had him on the show before once, but that's the real sort of, that's your personality, Alan, and it comes through in that documentary to go full circle again, the best of it. It's like, um, you know, you're, you're a good human being, um, and I really like that tweet, and with having a nephew myself and that, it, it really hit home, and I really try and do that anyway when I'm with him, you know, and I, I just thought that was great advice, and there's lots that can be taken out of that tweet. To, yeah, to thank you. I, I, uh, I uh, Again, I, I'm just drawing on my experience, you know, uh, like, I basically ended up raising a kid in Maine and from the age of, like, 15 on, and, and I'm not going to get into the story, but I never wanted kids. I never wanted to be dad. I just kind of wanted to... My parents split when I was 13. It didn't create a good dynamic for me. For It's not the good time to to, uh, <laughs> to, to have parents split, right? Right when you care about dating is uh, when your parents are saying, you know, this doesn't have good endings. And, uh, yeah. you know, sometimes with a mind like my... You know, like, like I said, I've always, I've always had a good mind, and... And that's the best I have and the worst I have at the same time. And, and at this time, it was the worst I had, where I really suppressed uh, belonging to have a family. Why, why the fuck have kids if, if they're going to have to go through this? That's kind of what went through my head. Like, what's the point? Plus, yeah. the planet's overpopulated. So I really, that's how I became a gambler, by the way. I found peace of mind at the racetrack and, and you know, uh, where I was a little, I struggled socially anyway because I, I, you know, the stupidity really tortures me. Uh, and that's that's kind of what you're subjected to most of the time, especially in high school where it's all kind of bullshit anyway. Uh, and I understood that, unfortunately. And but my parents splitting kind of is why how I became a gambler. And so I never wanted to be dad, but I, I ended up being dad. And and the one thing I took pride in in being dad was I, I just again I just winged it. But I understand that kids really don't know anything, and so if they did something stupid, it wasn't stupid; it's they didn't know any better. 
So there's no point in ever raising your voice or getting mad. And Rob, who was the kid, if he, if he, if he screwed up, I wouldn't say, you fucking idiot, why'd you do that? I would say, and this is exactly what I did every time. I said, you know, Rob, here's what you did. And here's the way I'm looking at it. And there's a good chance I'm looking at this entirely wrong. But, you know, when I look at what you're doing from, from my perspective, and he'd say, I got you, Mr. Boston. Don't worry about it. it. Won't happen again. All right, thanks. I wasn't sure if I was right or not. But that way you're not being negative to them. You're not beating them down for any reason. You're letting them learn on their own. All the while while just staying positive the entire time. And, you know, positive dynamics always create better learning experiences. Because anxiety learning curves are, are, are a real thing. When you're more anxious, you're less likely to learn, which is sometimes, by the way, why you fuck up at a poker table, too. You're getting a little anxious because the pot's getting big and you want to make the right decision, so you kind of lose your way a little bit. I, 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 get, I just taught myself something, by the way, so thanks for this interview. That is it in a nutshell. Uh, where I beat myself up for making the wrong decision so much, I just, yeah, I put too much pressure on myself. That's actually brilliant. So anyway, uh, yeah, so those words were like, kind of what I live by when, when now I had this open door policy at my summer place in Maine with these kids because it all just come in. There's a lot of alcoholism in Maine, a lot of kids who don't have fathers that are there for them. And I said, all right, well, being dad is kind of fun, so let me just be Mr. Mentor here. And, and you know, I had a lot of talks with, uh, you know, not a lot of kids, but a few. And it always kind of ended up the same where, you know, I just pumped them up nonstop, made them understand that they're awesome no matter what. And if they screwed up, it was all good. And if they had something to say, I listened. And that's what I, I, I felt differentiated me, me from most adults. Where most adults don't listen to what kids say, they forget that they were kids once and do have something to say. I listened. And no matter what they said, it was good. Even if it wasn't good, it was good. Yeah. And I, 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 so when I sent those words to Matt Berkey, by the way, who's one of your... I guess up-and-coming poker players. I, I used to play with him on a, on a Monday game at the Sun Coast. He was always very, very creative. And he's definitely the guy that will not go with the flow with poker. He'll, you know, get out there and do what he thinks is right uh, and, and probably be right. He's a pretty smart guy. Uh, that's who that tweet went to, ironically, a, a really a kind of a named poker player nowadays. And uh, I, don't, I don't know if he responded or not, but, but thanks. I'm glad, I'm, glad you, uh, I'm glad that resonated because uh, – yeah, I can think of no better words to, to write. And, and I was actually very, very proud of that little succinct statement there because it's very, very powerful, right? I thought, I thought it was very profound, actually. I did. You know, he's asking for locations to go and see whatever, and you're just like, no, that's not it. You know, it's like, this is the most important thing. And it's true. It's true. Cause, I, I, I agree. I think it's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, Alan, thanks very much for your time, mate. It's been well, thanks great. for having me. I hope no one gets bored. And uh, no, not at all. And we hope to get you back on in a few months, and uh, or maybe early part of next year, and catch up on your uh, poker, how it's going, how the two fives going, how the games have been going, etc. Because there are a few things that we're going to touch on as well. I'll save some for next time. And, okay. Uh, hopefully, I'll have this. Uh, hopefully, I'll be a creative muscle like that, and I'll have some really cool hands to uh, relate. I'm hoping. Looking forward to it. Uh, right. Thanks very much. Um, if you want to follow Alan on Twitter, do follow at BostonRed88. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at OneOuter.com. And you can get this show from iTunes or you can save it if you're streaming it only. You can save it from the OneOuter.com website as well. Until next time, thanks for listening and cheers. Cheers. 
The OSS Cubed is back with over $14 million in guaranteed prize pools from September 24th to October 22nd. This massive tournament series features three $1 million guaranteed tournaments. The first takes place on October 15th at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, featuring a half-price buy-in of just $265. Just one week later, on October 22nd, we'll have two million-dollar tourneys the same day, one with a $540 buy-in and the Boss Main Event with a $2,100 buy-in. AmericasCardroom.com